what kind of person are you? What encompasses what has brought you to this point today? Are you the sum total of your fears? Are you the sum total of your failures? Are you the sum total of your successes, your ambitions, or your dreams? Or is there something more important than those things? We know John 3.16. We've seen it time and time again. It usually is the central scripture of most vacation Bible schools. Uh, I probably was led to Christ by using John 3.16. It probably was the first passage of scripture that I memorized other than Jesus wept. Um, and, uh, and for many of you that would be the case. I mean, probably if I went across the room and I said... You know, could you recite John 3.16? And a lot of us know it from memory. And we know John 3.16, but we don't exactly, we can't really quote what happens before. And we can't usually quote what happens after because we just have bought into the belief that it's all good anyway. So why does it make a difference? Scripture, all scripture, is useful for teaching, instructing, correcting, all was given by God. Now, I was at a, I was at a conference this week, and uh, I like to go to conferences, especially ones that challenge me to think more deeply about things. And so uh, as typical, and Chris and I was there, or Chris was with me there, or I was with him. He was my driver this week and my bodyguard as we were at the conference. And uh, so we're sitting at the conference, and you listen to the speakers, and some things I'm all about and other things I'm not so much about. And there was one particular speaker and uh, he made the statement that, you know, really, all we need is the one passage of Scripture that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, because we know that all the commandments are built on that. Uh, and maybe some of you have heard that before, that if we didn't have anything else in Scripture, and that's all we had, that would be sufficient. And... Uh, it, it, it's easy to say that that's good and it sounds okay, but when you think about the ramifications of what being said, um, I don't agree with that. And I don't agree with it because the scripture that we have was given and is intended for us to look at and view and read and engage and embrace. All the scripture that we have was provided by the sovereign Lord of the universe. He intended for all of those scriptures to be in this time and this place. And it doesn't mean that we enjoy reading Leviticus or we enjoy reading Numbers or we enjoy reading some of those uh, what we would call mundane passages of scriptures that do not uh, affirm us or affirm our walk or affirm our talk. But the reality is that all scripture is useful to us because it was given to us by the one who gave his all. So we don't get to pick and choose what scriptures uh, make us happy. We don't get to choose, uh, pick and choose what scriptures uh, bring us what we believe is joy. We must engage scripture, period. Whether that's Old Testament, New Testament. And we have to be able to look about what is being said in the context of God's word. Now, John 3:16, we like because it affirms us. It's like, you know, if you believe in him, you have eternal life. Woo! And we're all about that. Uh, but there are several questions that I want you to think about this dialogue that happens in John chapter 3 between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. 
And one of the things that I would suggest to us is that these questions have profound implications upon not only what we do at school or what we do at home or what we do at work. They have profound implications for our lives, period. So here's, here's the first question. Are we positively impacting people with the gospel by the things that we do? Uh, and uh, let me say that. Let me ask that question again. Are we positively impacting people with the gospel by the things that we do? Not the things that we say, because all of us talk a, a nice talk. But are we impacting people positively with the gospel by the things that we do? Because listen, there are people in churches today, all across this country, all across North America, all across the world that are impacting people with the gospel, but they're not impacting people with the gospel in a positive way. They impact the people with the gospel in a negative way. Some of you are here because someone has impacted your life negatively with the gospel and you ran for the hills to find somewhere where you can have a positive influence. Listen, if worship can't be positive, if worship can't be uh, joyful, if worship cannot be exhilarating, if worship cannot be inspiring, if it can't be lifting up the name of Christ, then why are we here? Why are we here? Are we impacting people with the gospel in a positive way by the things that we do? Jesus entertains Nicodemus. He says, now there was a Pharisee in verse 1, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. In other words, he was not a backslidden Jew. He was not a backseat Jew. He was a part of the ruling council in Judaism. He was a, poor, uh, he was a person that had importance. He probably had a name tag if they had him back then. He also probably had a microphone if it was afforded to him. So he came to Jesus at night. Now I want you to notice that. He comes to Jesus at night. Why would he come at night? Is it because he can't sleep in the morning? Or he's not awake in the morning? No. He wanted to come at night because he didn't want people to know that he was going to talk to Jesus. Because he is an authority in Judaism. And suddenly he has these burning questions that, get this, his religion can't answer, his faith can't answer, his walk can't answer. And so he inquires of Jesus and he comes to Jesus tonight and says, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus in this passage could tell that Jesus was from God because of the things that Jesus had done. Now, what kind of things did Jesus done? Well, if you look in the beginning of John, you see one of the things, he had turned water into wine at a wedding in Canaan. Now, we don't like to focus on that as Baptists because it has that word wine and we get scared of that. We get very scared of that. We're so scared of that that for most part in our homes, uh, the wine is in the cupboard. It's not out on the counter so other people can see it. We're afraid of what might happen if someone would see wine on our counter. Jesus turned water into wine. He did not turn water into Welch's grape juice, which wasn't invented until the mid-1800s. He turned water into wine. And he performed many signs and miracles in the midst of that wedding. And this, is what the, this, is the, this was the reverb that was happening as a result of that miracle. Jesus showed up in amazing ways, a miracle was performed, and people are taking notice. 
They can tell that the signs and wonders of what he's doing, he's called people to follow him, and he's impacting their life by the things that he's doing. Now, as Baptists, we might say, well, I don't think Jesus is impacting the disciples' life or the people's life in a positive way if he turned water into wine. Let me just say this. Who are we to question the Son of God about what he turns, uh, what he turns water into? The, question, the, the key for us is, are we positively impacting people with the gospel by the things we do? If you think about the things that we do. Now last week, I shared with you that if I'm on I-26 and someone flips me the bird, I have a propensity to flip the bird back. And I said on that Sunday that sin is fun. And the act of sin is fun because if it wasn't, we wouldn't have such a great problem with it. But if I'm interested in impacting people positively uh, with the gospel, rather than negatively with the gospel, I might pay attention to what I do. See, I think a lot of Christians are under the assumption that because we've been baptized, we've kind of got this halo surrounding us, this aura, and so the aura enters the room before we enter the room, and we can do whatever we want to, we can say whatever we want to, because we're believers and we're saved and we're going to heaven. And some of you have bought into that lie from the pit of hell. Others of us, when we're in our cars, we think, well, you know, I might cut somebody off or I might speed, but I've at least got a bumper sticker on my car that points to Jesus. Listen, your bumper sticker doesn't mean anything on your car if what you're doing in your car is not positively impacting people for the gospel. Uh, likewise, the things that you say that can be good and encouraging mean nothing when our lives do not add up to what we say. What God wants more than anything else is for our obedience. We sang the song, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I would go as far as to say that uh, God's not really interested in our happiness. He's interested in our complete and perfect joy that comes about by pursuing Him and following Him and being obedient to Him. Are we positively impacting the people with the gospel by the things that we do? Nicodemus had taken notice of what Jesus had done. And Jesus replies and He says, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And so the question that Nicodemus has is a simple one, how can you be born again? I mean, am I supposed to enter, I mean, surely you don't mean that we're going to enter our, our mother's womb twice. No. And then there's this dialogue about flesh and spirit, flesh and and spirit. Now we don't really think of the, our lives as flesh and spirit. Let's just bring it up to the modern day vernacular. It's worldly or godly. Are you worldly or are you godly? Are we more spiritual? Are we more worldly? Or are we more godly? If you look in verses 6 through 8 of the passage, it says, Very truly, no one can enter the kingdom without being born of water and spirit. And then it says in verse 6, Flesh gives birth to flesh. 
but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. When we take a statement like sin is fun, and we allow that statement to be the life that we live, when we allow that statement to encompass our plan, our future, and how we view the, the world around us, the more that we believe that, the more that we engage that, the more that we give to that, the more worldly we will become. And God says that He wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants us to be radically different than the people that we are accustomed to meeting on the street. He wants us to be able to live a life that gives credence to the hope of Christ that we so eloquently profess from the rooftops on Sunday, but oftentimes that diminishes in the capacity Monday through Friday. God wants consistency. That's what he's wanted from the very beginning of Genesis, a consistent relationship with his people. You would not dream of flipping somebody off in the parking lot at First Baptist Church after you leave this worship service. So why would you even fathom it out in the world? And that's the struggle that we have. Consistency in our fellowship of Christ. What type of gospel, what type of Jesus are we portraying? Are we positively impacting people with the gospel by the things we do? Are we more spiritual or are we more worldly? Are we more godly or are we more worldly? The Son of Man, it says in verse 14 of this passage, if you read on, Nicodemus, of course, asks how this could be. And he says, you are Israel's teacher, Jesus says. Do you not understand these things? He says, we speak of what we know, we testify what we've seen, but still you people do not Accept our testimony. And then he says in verse 12, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And then he says in verse 13, No one has ever gone into heaven except those who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, Jesus references this dialogue with Nicodemus. In this dialogue with Nicodemus, he says, you know, just like when Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Uh, it's a very interesting passage. What I'm going to tell you as we look in uh, this passage in chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, don't get caught up in the details that you miss the message of what Christ is saying to Nicodemus. Now, in verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 21, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. Have you ever known followers of God to grow impatient? Let me ask you, have you ever known followers of God to grow impatient? How many of you have been praying for something and it doesn't happen exactly the way you wanted it to, when you wanted it to, how you wanted it to, and you grow frustrated at God? Yes, we do. Well, listen, nothing much is... Listen, technology has changed. People's dress has changed. Thank the Lord above. But 
the way we respond to God hasn't. Back in the old days, back when everybody wore robes, they didn't have men's restroom or ladies' restroom or whatever restroom. Everybody just kind of went on their own because everybody was in the same kind of garb. People grew frustrated with God. People grew frustrated with their leaders. How many of you have ever had a leader that you were frustrated at? Some of you are going to pay attention more to the at, the prepositions at the end of that question, than the reality of my question. How many of you have ever grown frustrated at a leader? Of course. They got mad. They got angry. They got angry at Moses. They were angry at God. They grew impatient on the way. And it says, it goes as far as it says in verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, like grumbling Baptists do, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Complainers. God's people were complainers then. And a lot of times we are complainers now. God, why are you doing this? God, that's not what I wanted to happen. God, are you up there? Do you, are you taking notice of my situation? Are you taking notice of my family? Hello? And we grow frustrated because the sovereign God of the universe who has suspended the sun and the moon and the stars in their place doesn't appear to us to be interested in what we as pathetic human beings have to say. Who are we to have an audience with the Most High God? We don't get to determine the conversation. We don't get to determine the time. Because guess what? The only reason that we exist is because He allows it. He could go, and we're gone. You do that. So these people were grumbling. We don't like the food. We're miserable. We're not happy. And they take their aggression out on God, and they take their aggression out on Moses. Now, pay attention to what happens here. <laughs> Verse 6. Then the Lord sent a venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Don't you want your children to draw that in Sunday school class today? God, listen, I mean, and this is the thing. We can pay attention to that and get caught up in that one verse. And like, oh my gosh, I'm having a crisis of belief. What's God doing? God sent the venomous snakes and they bit people. And the Bible says that those people died. I mean, they're gone. What happens? Again, be careful how you give your complaint. <laughs> you don't know... What's going to happen in the future? So he sent these venomous snakes. Some people died. And then the people came to Moses and said, We sinned <laughs> when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So you have these whiny, fussy preschool Baptists that are in the wilderness, 
Never mind the fact that God has delivered them from slavery. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were beaten in Egypt. They didn't have a life in Egypt that was their own. God provided a way where there seemed to be no way. They leave Egypt. They run from Pharaoh. God miraculously separates the sea. He allows those Israelites to go through on dry land. And then he collapses the waters on Pharaoh and his armies. Egypt is never ever going to be able to do this again. He leads them into the wilderness to bring them to a land of promise. But God is never going to give them the promised land until they're ready for it. And the unfortunate thing is, it took them generations to get ready for God's promise. Are you ready for God's promise? Are you caught up in complaints? Are you caught up in your own situation? Can you not see beyond the tip of your nose to understand that the God of the sovereign universe... He has a plan for your life. It's a plan to prosper you. It's a plan to prosper us. It's not a plan to harm us. It's a plan to give us hope. But we're not ready to receive what he has for us. In a modern day sense, we're like a church who has gone into labor. Now, I don't know anything about labor other than the fact that I've been in the room when my wife was in labor, it's not a pleasant experience. I can assure you that. You know, I'm just like, breathe in, you know, push. Does that hurt? Not at all. The church is in labor. Now, if you're a woman, you'll get this. If you're a man, you need to spend time with your wife. She can explain it to you. Do you want to have a prolonged labor? No. You want it to be done. If you want the promised land, if you want to birth something great, it's not about how long you're in labor. It's about preparing for the moment of delivery. God wanted to do something amazing in the people of God's lives. But they weren't ready, so they were perpetually stuck in a state of not knowing. They were caught in the in-between. There was this birth thing that they wanted, the birth of a promised land. They could see it, they could taste it, but it wasn't real to them because they were not prepared to receive God's blessing. And so they complain, God sends snakes, they bite people, people die. Then they realize their sin and say, Moses, Moses, we have sinned. Will you please pray for us? And so Moses prayed for the people. And then look in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, think about that. Put a bronze snake on a pole. If anyone gets bitten, look at that and you'll be healed. And so it was. Now if we go back to John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 15. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now listen to this. Jesus Christ, he needed to be lifted up like the snake on the pole needed to be lifted up. And the snake on the pole needed to be lifted up. Why? 
because there were people that were being bitten. And if they did not look at the pole, they would die. Likewise, let's move forward some generations. You and I, it's not a matter of if we've been bitten. We have been bitten. How do I know that we've been bitten? Because I know that we are all sinners. We all struggle with sin. And we know based on Paul's writing in Romans that the payment for our sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Those Israelites, and when they were bitten by the snake, they needed to look to the pole so that they could have healing. Likewise, for you and me, we've been bitten by sin. Sometimes it has defined who we are. And when we're left on our own way, that sin will not only consume our lives, that sin will lead to our ultimate destruction and we will die. But Jesus says in this passage with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus would have understood, Nicodemus would have understood this story that he's referencing. Remember, Nicodemus is a leader in the Jewish faith. Nicodemus holds the first five books of the Old Testament as central to the faith because that's what all the Jews did back then. It's what they do today. Jesus takes that story and says, just like what God provided with Moses, God now provides. And the provision is this, that when Jesus is lifted up, how was he lifted up? If you look at John chapter 12, verse 32, you'll see that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when he's lifted up, he will draw all people unto himself. How is he lifted up? He's lifted up in two ways. Primarily, he was lifted up on the cross. He was put on a pole. And as a result of being put on that pole... And being lifted up, the purpose of the cross is to draw all people unto himself. Because Jesus Christ knows, as he did with the conversation with Nicodemus, and as he does today, that when you and I have been bitten by life, when you and I have been bitten by sin, when we've been defined by the lives that we've lived, that we're in need of assistance, we're in the need of aid, we're in need of a Savior. And all he asks us to do is look to him. Look to him. Because when you and I look to him, our lives are radically transformed. When we look to Him, we're not defined by the sin or the snake or the bite. We're not defined by our depravity. We're not defined by our failure. We're defined by His victory. Because He says, when I am lifted up in John 12, 32, I will draw all people unto me. He didn't say, I'm going to draw all people that look like you and look like you and look like me. He's going to draw all people to him we live in a generation we live in a time where we want to define different people and we'll say well there's this crowd and there's that crowd and these people are wrong and these people are right and then you've got these and you've got these and we're just a Brunswick stew of identity we've got people that don't understand whether they're male or whether they're female or what you know, what it is that what's going on and here's what I want to tell you do not church do not write people off because the sovereign God of the universe, when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And the problem with us as a church, the problem with the church today, is that there's some people that we don't want to be lifted up. We don't get to determine who's lifted up. We don't get to determine the parameters. And so 
Why is it, as I began this morning, the story, why does all the law come down to one principal passage? Love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because love is what transforms. I want you to look at Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is clueless. He is lost. Does Jesus condemn him? No. Does Nicodemus, do we know for sure that Nicodemus leaves this conversation as a radically saved on fire follower of Christ? No. But we know that he had an encounter with Jesus. And we know from that encounter that Jesus not only explained the old nature of scripture and what it means in the modern day. We understand that Jesus is also talking about him as the son of man. But then I want you to notice how he concludes. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not die but will have eternal life. And then he goes on to say... For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But whoever, but what? To save the world through him. He didn't send his son to condemn the world. Why? He doesn't need his son to condemn the world. The church does a good job of that today. We're very good at condemning people. We're not so great at restoring people. We do great at preaching at people. We don't do exactly great at being the body of Christ. We'll lift up the name of Christ. We will trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And as long as people trust and obey exactly the way we trust and obey, then they're on our team. But if they struggle along the way, God forbid that they have an addiction. God forbid that they struggle with their identity. God forbid that they struggle with their sexuality. God forbid that they struggle with who they are. And the reality today is this. We are going to miss on one of the greatest opportunities that the Christian church has ever been able to see. And that is to see a segment of the population that has been pushed to the fringes of culture. The church doesn't want them. The world doesn't want them. But yet we are commanded by God. I, I just want to ask you this. What if Jesus showed up? What if he showed up in those situations in those people's lives? What would be the end result? Are we positively impacting people with the gospel by the things that we do? Or are we no better than the grumbling Israelites that complain about everything? And then when we get bit by sin or we get bit, uh, bitten by a snake, we don't know what to do. We don't know who to turn to. The sovereign God of the universe from the very earliest of time, he came into the world to impact the world, to save the world. He did not come in to condemn. He wanted people's lives to be transformed. And listen, it also doesn't mean that he doesn't care how people live, because he does. And as I've said, gosh, probably every Sunday from this pulpit since I've been here, I want our idea of people to be this. 
if a person is lost, I expect them to live like a lost person. And I want lost people to be at First Baptist Church. I want lost people to come to worship at First Baptist Church. I want lost people in every walks of life, every single person, man, woman, child, whatever their identity is, whoever they think they are, I want them to feel like when they enter the facility of First Baptist Church that they are welcomed, that they are loved, and we are going to do our God's very best to make sure that we share Christ with them by encouraging them, not condemning them, encouraging them. And I know that runs counter to Northeast Tennessee culture. That runs counter to the culture that I was raised in in North Carolina. It runs counter, gosh, it runs counter to a lot of churches that are lifting up the name of Christ this morning. The gospel is not convenient. The gospel is not easy. The gospel is hard. Because the gospel bids us come and die. The gospel calls us to empty ourselves and to be securely fastened to him. The son of man must be lifted up. And then Jesus goes on to say, and he concludes after he gives this very eloquent statement of the gospel, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not come to the world to condemn it, but came to save it through him. And then he says in the problem, and here's, here's the problem that Jesus introduces to Nicodemus. The problem is not the fact that people don't know or have not heard the love of Christ or seen it per se. The, the problem is there's a struggle between light and darkness. And so often darkness, we, we live in the darkness because that's all we know. We've been blinded by the darkness. We've become so accustomed to darkness that when light shines, it's hard for us to tell. And in the church, I was raised in a church, um, and they never said this, but uh, I, I kind of got the impression when I was raised in the church that Jesus was uh, blonde-haired, he was blue-eyed, and he was a registered Republican. Okay? Okay? And, I, and my parents can attest to this. Uh, I don't know if they remember this, but hopefully they do. Uh, but when I was a youth, uh, we had youth, we, we were cool. We were much cooler than you guys. Uh, we were. Uh, we had Wednesday night service. We called it boot camp. It started at 727. It didn't start at 730. It started at 727. And people would go, why does it start at 727? We just want to be different. And they put Jesus in army fatigues and M16. And I'm at this planning session, planning this youth event. I'm like... I, I, I don't know, I don't like Jesus in a military outfit. I mean, I, I'm in a military family. I'm just saying, I don't like Jesus in a military outfit because how do you speak peace when you've got that on? I mean, I just I don't like that imagery. Now, some of you might like that imagery, but I just, that, just didn't, that just didn't float for me. But I grew up in a, in a church environment, in a cultural environment, where if you were white and you were male, you were secure, primarily. If you're white and you're female, you're secure. If you're a different color, well, we'll give you a trade school option. And listen, we didn't have, listen, and I, I know I'm going here and I'm, 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 going, I'm delving deep. 
we had gay people in our culture, but no one admitted it. Nobody in our high school would say, I'm gay, or introduce themselves as a bisexual. That would not happen. Do you know why? They would have had the pulp beat out of them. Now today, thankfully, we don't do those types of things. And as a result of not doing those types of things, we have inadvertently sometimes said or by our actions invited people to celebrate that diversity and to fully embrace that as a viable option for a gospel-centered life. And I want to be very clear about this. That type of life is not rooted in the gospel. But that doesn't mean that those types of people cannot be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we still sin and we still struggle. Jesus did not come to condemn people. He came to save them. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, it's not saving us from someone else. Sometimes it's saving us from ourselves. You can hear a pin drop in this room right now. But here's the reality. Many of you know people who are struggling today. Many of you know, who pe know people in this very room, and if they're not in this room, you know people that are, that are in, the, in your walks of life that are not in church today. And you know, why? you know why they're not in church? They're not in church because they don't believe it to be true. They're not in church because uh, they don't want to go. They're not in church because they can't find their niche. Why? Because the church has so often judged them and thrown them to the dogs rather than being gospel-centered and compelling them and loving them to Christ. It's time for the church to be like Jesus. And the major sin, the major sin, if we want to call that, of the New Testament, I think would be adultery. Jesus encounters in John chapter 4, in the next passage actually, this woman at the well who is not with the man that she's married to and she's had five different husbands. She's a Samaritan woman. A Jew should have nothing to do with her. And Jesus takes an opportunity to strike up conversation. He knows everything about her. He knows about her sin. He knows about the evil. He knows about the entrapment, the bite of sin that's encountered her life. And yet, you know what? He encounters her in conversation and he tells her, you're here for water and I've come to give you living water that will quench every thirst of all thirsts. Jesus had the amazing ability not to allow other people's circumstances to define his gospel. People had the, uh, Jesus had the uncanny ability not to allow the depravity that was around him to determine necessarily what he said. Because more important than what Jesus said is what we see in the compassion that he gave. When you and I love people, when you and I embrace people, it doesn't mean that we agree with people. I've had friends who are lost. I've had friends who are saved. I've had friends who are gay. I've had friends who don't know what they are. But I can tell you this. They didn't diss me. 
They didn't push me aside. They listened to what I had to say. Why? Because I didn't condemn them. Doesn't mean that my standards changed. Doesn't mean that the gospel truth changed from my life. Because I believe sin is sin regardless. But I believe that God is greater than a person's sin. And I believe God can save a person and God can reach down and radically change someone's life. I believe when we are mired up and messed up and fouled up and everything else in between, that God can reach down in the midst of who we are and make us a new child, give us a new vision, a new hope, a new life. He can do it all because you know what? He did it for me. And he did it for many of you. What type of gospel are you portraying? Are we positively impacting people with the gospel of Christ? Within the last two weeks, I contacted someone that is distant from the church today. And they're distant from the church today because they're struggling with who they are. And they don't believe the church is the right place for them because they feel condemned when they come in. And I told this person, I want you to know that if there's anything I can do for you, if there's anything that you need, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there. And they sent me back this response, and they said, thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you for extending a hand. That's what we should be about at First Baptist Church. Defined by the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't shy away from what's right or wrong. But we don't get to determine what's right or wrong. He does. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God did not come into the world to condemn it but to save it through him. That, ladies and gentlemen, is our mission. That is our vision. That is our focus. We want to love people to the cross because the cross, as we find, as he references Numbers chapter 21, the cross, Jesus on the pole, is the place that sin was abolished, that sin finds its future, and the people, potential people of God, find their eternal hope. Because when we look away from where we've been, when we look away from the snake that's bitten us, from the sin that's entangled us, from the sin that's trapped us and kept us from living the life that we've wanted to live and that God has wanted for us, when we look to our Savior, when we look to our Lord, when we look to the cross, he draws all people to himself. It's a good day at First Baptist Church. And it's a good day and a good season at First Baptist Church, not because we showed up, but because Jesus went to a cross. He nailed your sins and my sin and all of our sins to that cross. He took it upon himself in bodily form. And he has had power and dominion over that sin and he is victorious and guess what the beauty of it is because he's victorious you and I and everybody else in the world can be victorious as well never ever give up on anyone because I'm going to tell you right now God will never ever has never and will never give up on you
God, we come to you today in this invitation as we sing in Christ alone. And Lord, it's in you alone that we stand. It's in you alone that we have our being and our hope. We pray for people in this place, for our visitors today that have come. And God, we just ask that you would speak to us as you've spoken during worship, that you would draw us unto yourself. And Father, that we would lift you up in this time of invitation. Where there are people with real needs, this altar is open. May we come to you and confess the things that we've done that have stood against you. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a positive impact on people's lives. That we would point people to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And just as many of us have been saved and many of us have been challenged and many of us have been equipped to do great things, Lord, we pray today, we pray today that you would give us the strength and compassion that we need to give it to others. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done, for your work in our lives. And Lord, we ask corporately today, we ask for forgiveness from you when we have complained because you took us to a place we didn't want to be. You didn't give us the food that we wanted. Whatever the complaint might be. Lord, in this invitation, as you do business with your people, may we be faithful and authentic and respond to you as we lift up the name of Christ and as he draws us in to his very name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing, if you're here this morning and you need to make a decision maybe to trust in Christ, to believe in Him, maybe it's to recommit your life to Him, maybe it's as you thought, you thought, you know what, I have, I have been so judgmental towards people, or I've been so condescending, or I've been so condemning to certain people, and you've recognized that, you know, just as Christ did not condemn you, and He welcomed you, so He welcomes others. This invitation is for us to respond to the movement of God in our lives. And if you're here today and you need to do that, or if you're here today and you say, you know what, this is the type of church I want to be a part of. This is the type of fellowship and family that I've always wanted. Listen, we're here for you. We want you to celebrate with us. We want you to commit to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to thrive and flourish in the gifts that he's given you as we respond to his call, as we listen to his voice. Won't you come?